Hey y'all, this is Stacey Pearsall, and you're listening to Everything, my podcast where I talk about, well, everything. I have had a fear of snakes since I can remember. Anything that looks like a snake, a hose, or anything that sounds like a snake, even something just slithering through the grass, will freak me out. I will literally jump out of my skin. My worst nightmare would be to fall into a pit of snakes, or have one crawling around my barn, or in my shoes. Worst case scenario, in my shoes. This week, I'm going to share with you my worst nightmare come true. I went to put my boots on to go to the barn and feed the horses. I put my left boot on first, tied up my laces, and then went to put my right on. And I thought, huh, I must have got my shoelace shoved into the toe of my boot. So I tugged on the shoelaces and both of them came free, but I still felt what felt like a shoelace in my boot. I paused for a minute, gathering my gumption, took my foot out of the boot, tipped it upside down, and out came a snake. Yes, totally freaked out. A snake, a black one, harmless, utterly harmless, the size of a pixie stick, but still. Everything that you can imagine came to mind. I squealed, promptly opened the door to the house, and did my best to utter some sort of call to my husband, and gripped the frame of the door between the garage and the mudroom, and just tried to keep my emotions in check. How can something so tiny, the size of a pixie stick, let me remind you, something so tiny freak me out so badly? That leads me to another snake story, if you'll humor me. I was visiting my friend Trish, and I was late into the evening. We said our goodbyes. I walked down her front steps, down her beautiful brick sidewalk, and to the gate of her front yard. I stepped on something tubular, and at the same time, there was a rustle in the grass. I shot straight up, vertically straight up in the air, and bolted back to the house where I bent over panting in fear. And I said, I, 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 I think there's a snake at the g- g- gate. And she turned the floodlights on to the front porch, and we both turned the lights on on our cell phones and crept back toward the gate, only to discover it was her garden hose and a frog. So there you go. Life is like a boot of snakes. You never know what you're gonna get. In other Lowcountry Acres news this week, Leah and Floyd are finally home from their trip to the clinic. Leah was bred on Thursday, and we will find out if she's pregnant in a couple weeks. In the meantime, Floyd is settling in as well as Leia. She went back to her normal routine. And everyone's getting acclimated, including Bob. Yeah, Bob was born while Leia and Floyd were gone, so there was a bit of a surprise for their reunion. And Joe and Flo were very happy to see Leia home, too. It's a big happy family in the pasture. Meanwhile... I am having a fence built around 12 acres of beautiful grassland, so the horses will have full run of this awesome turnout once that fence is done, which I think is probably September, just in time for uh, fall to set in and the grass to die. But there's always 2021. 
I feel like I've been saying that since uh, March. <laughs> Can't wait till this year is over. Am I right or am I right? Speaking of next year, I found out some awesome news this week on the work front. A show that I've been developing with SCETV has been picked up by PBS+. Yeah, can you believe it? I am the producer of a show called After Action, and I have some awesome team members that are helping me through it up in Columbia, South Carolina, and we will begin filming early in 2021. What's astonishing is I never thought that I would be part of a television series like this, let alone the host of the show and being a producer. It has been quite eye-opening, a learning experience, and humbling all at the same time. But I am thrilled at the idea that PBS Plus believes in this show as much as I do. The show concept was born after the failure of another SCETV project, and that's why I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. Had this other program been successful, I wouldn't have been able to pursue after action with the amazing director, Don Godish. The short of it is, Don and I met on another project about post-traumatic stress and combat veterans years and years and years ago, and he had another project come on the table where we were going to talk to veterans at a museum, which I will not name, and he thought I would be a great host. As a combat veteran myself and doing public speaking, he felt that I would bring something to the table. And I was humbled and honored to be part of that project for the minute that it lasted. At the end of the day, we sat down with the museum director at that time, and he was a combat veteran as well. And he talked over me, more like through me and past me. Didn't know who I was or what I was about, the Veterans Portrait Project, and all the things that really validated why I was there in the conversation to begin with. I sometimes find it interesting that because of what I look like or perhaps my age or any other number of things, perhaps because it w I was an enlisted member and he was an officer, he did not connect with me or I would say he didn't even give me a chance. I believe that Don Godish's belief in me and the power of knowing what the Veterans Portrait Project was all about, this gentleman didn't see it and didn't believe it, and therefore we could not have it coming together. Luckily for me, Don and Tabitha Softie from SCETV, who's also very enthusiastic about After Action, we sat down and we talked about how to formulate this series. We spent a lot of time figuring it out, and here we are. We're going to go full steam ahead and like I said, don't look at failures as a failure. Sometimes you need failures in order to pursue other successes. Also, never judge a book by its cover. I'm underestimated all the time. And when I feel myself doing that to other people, I have to consciously stop myself and say, you're being judgmental and you could be way off base. I know that museum director was way off base about me and I certainly don't want to do that to anybody else. When I ran the Charleston Center for Photography, I would run into this all the time. Actually, I took over the business when I was 28 years old, and I couldn't wait to turn 30 because I felt like that was the magical number when people would start taking me seriously. I had a fantastic front-of-the-house gal by the name of Sally, and when patrons who didn't know who the owner was would come in and want to inquire about photography classes or different events we were having, 
she would call me up to the front office and they were obviously expecting somebody else, perhaps just a little bit older or more established. I don't know. And having the name Stacy is also unisex, so perhaps they thought I would be a man. Who knows? Now that I think about it, this actually started before I even took over the business. I went to the bank to get a loan, and the loan officer read through my business proposal and looked at my numbers and thought, this looks really great. We sat down, and he said, you know, Stacy, your proposal looks amazing, and I think even in this economy, you'll do okay, but I'm going to need to meet your husband. I was gobsmacked that he would even have the audacity to ask to meet my husband or to even assume I was married. A woman couldn't stand on her own and own her own business? Uh, To me, that thought process was so archaic, I almost laughed out loud. I went home and told my husband that he had to come with me to the bank so that I could get a loan. And he, too, found it pretty comical. But I drug him to the bank, and he met the loan officer, and I got my loan, and I became, for the first time in my life, a small business owner. Which leads me to the topic of the day, being an entrepreneur-ish. Most all that I know now, today was derived from my experiences at the Charleston Center for Photography. Granted, the military taught me responsibility, time management, delegation, leadership, and all of those qualities that are bar none given military attributes. The Charleston Center for Photography is where I learned to be a business owner and lent itself to the successes that I have had today. So let me share with you a little bit of what I know. The first thing I learned was that time is money, and I had to manage one in order to make the other. I have gotten into the habit of segmenting my time. First thing in the morning, I check my emails, and I do that over my coffee and breakfast, so I'm doing two things at once. Well, technically three things at once. Then, once breakfast is over, I put the phone down, and I don't check emails again unless there's a a fire somewhere. By practicing and setting boundaries with my emails, I allow myself the time to think about other things I have to do. That said, I do set time limits on just about everything. I can dig really deep into my bookkeeping and it could take me hours because I suck at numbers, but I set a time limit on that. I set a time limit for my photo editing, for correspondence with clients, for phone calls, interviews, and volunteerism. As an entrepreneur-ish, I realized that every single hour of my work routine has a monetary value to it and that I needed to be able to be productive and earn a certain amount of money to spread across that time in order to keep my business going. So again, time is money and should be managed equally. Second, I had to know the value of my art in order to set a price in the first place. When I went out on my own and I started my photography business, I had a hard time convincing myself how to convince others that my art had value. In fact, it's an almost impossible task to convince an insecure photographer like myself that they have worth and value, an even more impossible task to convince a client who has a cell phone in their pocket that your professionalism is what they're actually buying. With time and experience distance between that young photographer I was and who I am now, 
I am very confident to ask for the price from my clients that I think I'm worth. And here's a few tips that I have for you. Be sure to factor in your cost of living because a byline won't turn your lights on. Then you need to consider what it's going to cost to continually upgrade your gear or add new gear and new technology to stay relevant. Continue education costs, insurance, travel. And just remember that if you're a photographer like me, you actually have to front your expenses and then you get paid after. So you need to make sure that you've got some money squirreled away from one assignment so that you can fund the top of the next one. I still operate under that auspice today. In fact, I've learned to keep at least three months of rent in my savings and what it would cost for me to self-fund two assignments. That includes my lodging and my travel, hiring assistance if I need them, and what it would be to feed that crew and also rent any specialty gear I may need. So just some food for thought. When you're actually penciling out what your cost of doing business is and you set your rates, think about everything. And then at the end of the day, you need to think about what is going to satisfy you to get up in the morning and go to work. Third, I learned that the more I could learn and do on my own, like bookkeeping and the marketing, social media, public relations, scheduling, class writing, all that stuff, the more I could learn and do on my own, the more profitable the business would be and that I could use those funds to, I don't know, supplement other areas that were shortfalling. Which leads me to number four. I constantly had to be reinvesting in my own business because you have to spend money to make money. As a photographer particularly, I learned that I needed to stay up to date on my gear. After all, technology evolves so quickly, and as a photography educator, I needed to be out in front of what was new in order to be able to learn it myself and then be able to write a class around it and teach it. Much the same of what I'm doing now, too. But as a professional photographer, it would be hard to be taken seriously by my clients if I were to show up on an assignment with anything less than the latest and greatest. And that segues into the fifth thing that I learned, and that was continued education. Regardless of how well you think you know something, technology evolves, uh, techniques evolve. I realized that in order to stay relevant and proficient, that I needed to continue to foster my education. While expanding my mind through education, I learned all the things that I'm really not good at. You can ask my husband and he will tell you that I am not great with numbers. I can sit down and I can put QuickBooks together. I can write invoices and and send those out. That's fine. But to get deep into numbers is not my forte. So that leads me to number six. I learned that I needed to surround myself with people who could fill my professional gaps, so to speak. And it's not a shortcoming to say that you're not good at something. There are plenty of things I am not good at. Part of being a business owner is recognizing that and making sure that you find people who who will make you shine and make you look good. Therefore, I hired a CPA. Admitting I wasn't good at something was the easy part. I tell you what wasn't easy. Learning to say no. I felt like I had to say yes to every potential job that came across my desk. 
My fear was that turning down a job might mean that the requester would never come back to me because I told them no. This led to me taking on more jobs that I could ever want and for less pay than I was really worth. And then, to make matters worse, I was wearing myself thin. So lesson number six, learn to say no. I tell you what, I always thought of no in a negative context, but really as a business owner, I realized that no can be very beneficial. Just say no. When someone offers a byline and exposure in exchange for my work for free, I just say no. Because what I've learned, and this leads into number eight, is that I have value. So if I can impart anything to you, and this is the most essential part, is that you have worth, I have worth. You wouldn't go into the dentist's office and ask for a filling for free, and that you would show it off to other people and show just how good of a dental filling it is. No. You can learn to say no, you have value, and you can say yes to paid work, and yes to fulfilling work, and yes to people who will value you for the art that you create. At least that's what I think for myself. After all, you want to work with somebody who appreciates you for the work that you do. And I feel when somebody asks for something for free, it's automatically undervaluing me and my work. I found there were other ways to be compensated for the work I was doing for requesters. If it was a project that I truly believed in, I really wanted to be part of it, but there was no money or the budget was really, really low, I would look critically at that particular project and say, what can I get in return for my efforts? Is it something that's going to emotionally fulfill me or is there something that the requester can give me in exchange? So compensation does not have to be cash in hand. If there is an assignment that you absolutely want to do, cannot pass it up, but there's no budget and they aren't offering any money, just make sure that you establish what the parameters are and that they know what value you're putting into it. And particularly if it's a nonprofit organization, oftentimes you can let them know what the value of your services are. And in some instances, it can be a tax write-off at the end of the year. That's not saying that there's always a quid pro quo. Again, there is emotional value in doing good deeds. I myself set aside a certain number of hours every year for volunteerism. But the thing is, I don't have an infinite amount of time. I need to pay my bills. I have a bleeding heart and I like to say yes to everything, but I have had to learn to say no. By setting the amount of hours that I volunteer every year, once I hit that cap, it frees me emotionally from telling others, I'm sorry, I've met my cap, I've already committed my time and my resources and my services to other organizations, but I will keep you in mind for the next year. And that too is something that I continue to do today. I believe there's something special in connecting with your clients. And I learned that through the Charleston Center for Photography and all of the patrons that I met along the way. Everyone comes to you with different needs. And I find that it's very important to invest time into my clients and to understand what they're looking for specifically. Obviously, they came to me for my artistic point of view, but they also have a vision as well, and I want to make sure that we're on the same page, which leads me to number seven. 
establishing a rapport as well as parameters. For me, that is through contracts and estimates and all of this paperwork that is necessary. While I don't enjoy sitting down writing line items and budgeting, this is absolutely necessary for anybody who is going to be running a business. Most especially if you're a photographer and the responsibility lies solely on you to create a budget for lighting assistance, location fees, scouting, travel. Anyway, that's a lesson that I learned the hard way, that I under-budgeted and came out upside down. I don't want that for you, and I definitely don't want that for me. So I make a habit of spending more time with my clients, asking questions that may seem laborious, but all of those expectations are fleshed out well in advance. So when I get on location for an assignment, they don't ask for me to have an underwater housing for my camera that's going to cost me some money to rent, or if I need to do aerial shots and I have to rent a plane, all of these things. And that language is in each and every contract and estimate that I put together every eventuality. And those expectations are also outlined and I know what goals I need to set for myself while on an assignment. If there was any fault that lies in me losing money on an assignment or maybe expectations weren't met and the client weren't happy, that was my fault. So ultimately, that's what I'm trying to relate to you. That you as an entrepreneur, or in my case, entrepreneur-ish, the responsibility is all yours. You are your own boss. You are the one who sets everything. Ultimately, having things in writing will just make you feel secure. It will outline the expectations and there will be nothing left to chance. Speaking of chances, I would encourage you to consider copywriting all of your imagery if you're an artist or any art for any artist. There are a lot of vultures out there who want something for free and will, without any qualms, take your imagery or your art and use it for their campaigns or maybe even use it as their own work to get hired by what could be your clients. And it's so easy today for people to do that, especially with the web. Lesson number eight, always file copyright registrations with the United States government because you don't have a leg to stand on if somebody does steal your work or use your work without permission or without licensing. And that also leads me into number nine, license your work with all your clients. Part of that contract will outline what their expectations are for the length of use of your imagery. If you're doing anything from journalism to commercial work, portraits, things like that, you want to make sure that your clients know that your imagery is not a in perpetuity usage, that there are limits to what they can use it for. The last thing I want to see is any of my veterans' portraits used in campaigns that would besmirch the veteran community. And therefore, I copyright my imagery and I also outline in my contracts and my agreements what that usage is and what the limitations are. My final thought and my 10th lesson from being a small business owner is that there is nothing more in important than to find a life-work balance. It is so easy as an entrepreneur to get submerged 
under the workload and be overwhelmed. But you cannot sacrifice your personal life and your family if you have one or um, letting your hair down every once in a while for the sake of your business. If you are not mentally sound or venting the pot every once in a while, you're not going to be any good. When you're managing your time, factor in some time to let your hair down, whether that's going for a run or setting an alarm to step away from your computer, step away from your digital art workflow, and to just breathe. And when somebody asks you to go out and have drinks with the girls, say yes. I know I talked a lot about no, but that would be a time to say yes, yes, yes. I am not a perfect person, nor am I the epitome of a small business owner. I don't have an education in it. In fact, all of the lessons that I've imparted to you during this episode were learned the hard way. I'm just trying to let you know all the things that I learned the hard way so that you don't have to. And even if you have, I'd love to know about it. Please visit me at everythingstacy.com and share with me your trials and tribulations as a small business owner and what it's like for you as an independent photographer if you are. Well, that wraps up this episode for this week. I'm an entrepreneur-ish, and I hope that this was helpful. Just remember, between now and my next podcast, make sure you tip your shoes upside down and shake them. There might be a snake. Thank you all for your continued support. I appreciate it. And I look forward to chatting with you all next week about everything. Thank you.